Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that has got a record growth for two straight quarters. Well, no, not really. But we'll get to that in a second. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, the good doctor, Dr. Nirvan Mahanti. Good morning, sir. How are you? I am very good, Captain. How are you? I'm, mate, I'm exceptionally well. I'm, again, blue skies out here. I know no one cares, but I do. I'm always happier when the sun's out, mate. So that's that's a good thing. Um, mate, we've got a bit to get through. A lot of macro this week, but really kind of important kind of where are we at macro. And I think after earnings season, that kind of makes sense. So we'll talk about where we are as an economy. We'll talk about earnings season. We'll talk about what's happening in the US. There are some interesting changes there. Corporate culture is on the docket and we will we haven't talked about COVID for a while and, and most of our listeners are thinking thank God we got sick of doing that every single week and I don't blame them we kind of did too although it was important and necessary but you mentioned to me this morning before we started recording that I mean it, it is worth kind of doing a quick check on where we're at and what we can kind of expect and and the news is hopefully hopefully good but we'll get to that and of course we wouldn't be a Motley Fool Mailbag. A Motley Fool Money podcast. I've given it away without dipping into the full mailbag, mate. So uh, what do you say we just get on with it? Let's get on with it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, let's start with the big macro, as we do. Um, hard to be disappointed this week if you're looking for growth. The uh, treasurer said we apparently have regained 85% of what we lost during the uh, COVID recession. He didn't quite define exactly what that is. I'm assuming it's economic activity. Um, we had the December quarter GDP numbers. That's October to December. Yes, it's March. And yes, those numbers are really, really late. The ABS could really do with a bit of extra money to speed that up just quietly. But anyway, uh, we know now that for the second quarter of the financial year, the last quarter of the calendar year, GDP growth was again above 3%. The first time in 60 years, in other words, since records began, that the economy has grown 3% or more for two consecutive quarters, which is not nothing, except, <laughs> I, I kind of, you know, giving, giving one head, taking away with the other, except the annual growth was still a negative 1.1%. We shouldn't be surprised. Um, if you think about the, the 12 months that were 2020, um, we didn't really know what, what was coming in the first one and a half, almost two months. The last six months were great. In between that, of course, was the, the worst of the economic circumstances we've seen in our lifetimes, mate, and arguably since the Great Depression. That being said, GDP up, things still looking good. You've made your comments before. I'm sure you're going to remind us about the uh, the, the fake economy and the fake, the fake spending. But even you couldn't have been unhappy about seeing a, a, a three-plus GDP growth for the quarter, surely. Oh, I, I'm never unhappy about those, <laughs> good, those, good. those numbers, but I like to remind people about my dog price index. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's right. Yes, the yeah, DPI. Uh, the, the, the DPI. So uh, you know, it's a it's a little fun to talk about the dog price index. But until the dog price is normalized, I think we're still in a fake economy. You know, mm-hmm. in, or, or let me put it this way: until I buy a dog, <laughs> <laughs> which I shall only buy if if if, uh, um, if the price is normalized. Uh, you are the marginal consumer for dog prices. When we when you buy that, we know things are okay. <laughs> That's absolutely the case. But, but you know, yes, I think the good news is um, I think it's a reflection of a lot of the service economy sort of coming back. We know yeah. there are certain sectors that are still hurting, um, you yeah. know, travel-related sectors. Mm. Uh, but but a lot of the service economy is back, which is effectively good for um, mm. people, uh, you know, which basically means people have jobs. People have also got things to do. Like you know, mm. people like to do things, and if they can do those things, then they'll be happier. So it's it's good for happiness, I guess, Correct, for yeah, happiness yeah. index. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but no, no, this is surprising, right? I mean, the the 
here's another counter 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 way of thinking about this, right? Mm-hmm. You two, you know, I think uh, what are are we had what 160 billion, 170 or 200 billion, some, somewhere in that range, some huge number. Stupid uh, amount, exactly. Yeah. Stupid amount of money, and yep. if you re- look at that relative to the total size of the of the economy, it's humongous, yeah. right? Yeah. If you yeah. throw that kind of money and you don't get growth. That would be a bigger one, right? <laughs> That's right. Exactly, <laughs> it's good that exactly. you're getting some growth because if you didn't get growth, <laughs> then there'd be bigger, bigger problems. So that's the bright side, right? So maybe all of that's these, you know, um, the stimulus and everything is is doing something, uh, yeah. or, you know, and, and that's good. Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, um, yeah, I just say the people, if I have to throw a word of caution, I'll just say yeah. that it's good to be, uh, I think there's the bright side that is the service economy is back. The, it's yeah. good to, however, reflect that, you know, if you think from an investing point of view, if your supermarket, favorite supermarket, uh, mm. you know, had 20% growth uh, <laughs> it, this year, it's not going to have 20% year over year growth Correct. next year. Uh, and, and and your favorite furniture uh, supplier, again, it's not going to have 20%. <laughs> the other, other thing to notice, you, you know, uh, the, I guess if you're talking about these numbers, I guess one other thing, I think our household savings rate or the savings mm. uh, rate of the economy uh, mm. or the people in the economy, I guess, was at something like stupid high, like 20% plus, Correct, right? Was, yeah. That has yeah. now dropped to what, 12% something or mm. 13% mm. something. Mm. So people have spent up <laughs> the the supplied money uh, in some sense, uh, but there's still some more ways to go in terms of how, so there's, there's I guess there's more opportunity for spending to happen. Mm-hmm. Realize that, but realize that it's it's also on a on a downward trend. Uh, all in all, I think good. Yeah, I think this, I think it's pretty fair. Mate. You you made an interesting point actually. A couple of interesting points. The, the dog price index, or the the puppy price index, I think we called it last time. Uh, I, I like that. I think there is some sense of for all of the other numbers that we see that you know used used cars the same. Some used cars up 20, 30, 40 percent. I think it was Hilux are up forty one point two percent is the number that stuck in my head, something like that. Maybe because I own one that I, I took <laughs> I took account of it, I'm not sure. But in any case, um, you know, those numbers they're not sustainable, as you rightly say, and they are indicative of distortion. And I think that's as you rightly point out, that's the the probably, you know, as much as they're not really important, they are that kind of average person indicator which says, hang on, are we really going to pay I don't know what I don't know what forty percent on average Hilux is, but it's probably something like you know I don't know, ten grand, twelve grand. Um, are we really going to pay twelve grand more for a, a used car than we should because things are a bit weird? And that's you know new car supply and its market conditions and all that sort of stuff. But as that comes back, as the puppies um, start to come back, as we have a glut of puppies, um, then you know that that'll tell us something as well. Uh, also interesting to me too, and I'm I'm with the optimist here, but and I'm still optimistic actually. But we do have JobKeeper finishing on March thirty one. Um, I was talking to someone the other day saying it was said that we she was talking to a hairdresser of all people and the hairdresser said she knew four or five people who were going to lose their jobs as soon as JobKeeper finished and I don't I don't I don't feel that can be universal by definition if you kind of you know not, if you talk to 100 people and they know 500 people and then talk to 1,000 people they know 5,000 people I mean it can't literally be true that there's that scale of job loss coming but there certainly is the probability I think I would have said likely to say probability that unemployment does jump a little bit in April, May, June, as as businesses either close down because they can't afford to to stay in business, or they get rid of staff they can't afford to keep, who they'll kind of keep in courtesy of the government's job keeper. So there is, I think, some another one more speed hump left. Um, in terms of getting back to some sort of normality, it won't necessarily even normalise the puppy price index, but you know that's the last bit of government stimulus realistically to be withdrawn before we work out how the economy is faring literally on its own steam. Yeah, I think that that all I think that makes sense. The yeah, so I think the job 
again, I, th- I think I agree with you. you we, I don't think you can extend that argument that, you know, I know five people and everybody knows five people yeah, and yeah. therefore, you know, <laughs> so, so, so there's a hundred million Australians are going to lose their jobs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, basically uh, everybody's going to lose their job. So, so, yeah. <laughs> five, five times over. That's yeah, probably unlikely to happen. But, but uh, I do think there's some truth to that, right? That there will yeah. be some, there are some marginal yeah. businesses uh, that got an extra lease of life because of, uh, the other thing, you know, what what I think people should realize is there's a large number of uh, SMBs that got effectively got benefit from uh, the cash flow boost program, yes, right? Yeah. So, so that was a you know based on how much tax a, a corporation has paid, they got money back, and uh, I think again. For many small businesses, there are two or three people, so that has effectively meant that that cash has flowed to them. Uh, th- there has been extra surplus cash that has come in via those routes as well, which which would slowly get depleted out of the system, uh, or not depleted, but at least get used and then you know deployed. Yeah, it's taking out savings and put into the economy for sure. Yeah, so I think some of that is there, um, true, true. but yeah, again, we would not know until uh, sort of we cycle through. Mate, um, let's let's do the last bit of, bit of macro. The other one, I don't, I don't have anything new to talk about this. You may not either, but if you may, maybe you do. So we, we will discuss. It. We talk about rates a lot on this podcast. There are plenty of people judging by our correspondents who know our views on on interest rates and central bankers, uh, including more than a few votes for you to be the new governor of the Reserve Bank when uh, Phil Lowe's time is up. Uh, the uh, maybe maybe there's a career for you there, but we'll see. Well, maybe you'll be the new uh, the next RBA governor. I'm not ruling it out. I'm not ruling it out. Um, the uh, rates were on hold again this week in, in the least surprising RBA decision ever. Um, there's been a few of those least surprising decisions given that rates haven't moved much recently. Um, they are continuing their bond buying program. They continue to reiterate really strongly that their their, their plan, and, and let's just go over it because it matters, um, they're not going to increase rates or they're not planning to increase rates until inflation is sustainably between 2 and 3%. And that's a change because, as we've said before, they used to look forward and say, uh, we see inflation coming, we'll put rates up now to start the process of cooling the economy before we get there. Now they're saying, no, 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 we're going to wait till the data actually comes in. So that pushes the can down the road, maybe kicks it potentially, if uh, if you excuse the analogy, six months or so, on what it would normally have otherwise been. They're also saying that they don't expect that inflation to return, including wages growth, until 2024. And most, uh, the, I guess the only point I wanted to make, and this is not a new one either, but most people are saying, hey, the RBA aren't increasing rates till 2024. And I think I just want to pass that a little bit for people, particularly people who are looking at taking out mortgages or business loans, frankly, they're listening to us. If you're small business people listening to us, the RBA is not saying that. They are saying there are certain preconditions and they don't expect those conditions to happen until 2024, but they are not saying if they're there before 2024, they won't increase rates earlier. Now, they may not, and those conditions may never come. So it may be 2028 for all we know. But I just want to make the point that the shorthand people have kind of linked those two together and said, RBA says rates on hold till 2024. That is currently their expectation, but it's completely data dependent. If that data arrives sooner rather than later, the RBA will also move sooner rather than later. And I don't know if there's a point in that for investing. There might be for businesses. There certainly should be at least a consideration for those taking out a mortgage. But um, just thought that was worth highlighting because I've seen so many headlines of RBA says rates on hold till 2024 as if it's some sort of promise. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, point. I mean, yeah, it's a data-driven process. So again, I'll say, <laughs> I, I, I think the RBA probably is among... Most irresponsible um, central banks, in my opinion, of course. Um, I say that part in jest, but here's here's my issue with the RBA's program, overall program, right? Mm. So RBA is keeping the low, so the rates are low. Yep. 
but that rate is only helping or majority helping consumer borrowing. Yeah, correct. And it's largely focused on the property sector. And it's creating asset price inflation as a result. And it's creating asset price inflation. It is not actually helping the economy. It's not, it's not that the rates were not low enough that mm. somebody couldn't build a new industry. It was not that the rates... Yeah. yeah, go on, keep going, sorry. So, so it is not as if the rates were low enough that somebody could start a new entre- venture yeah. or something yeah. like that. The rates were already low. The problems yeah. were elsewhere. The rates are low enough, but nobody is actually willing to rent, you know, give a loan for starting a new venture yeah. because that's, yeah. you know, that's not against some brick and mortar and some land somewhere mm. filled with some, you know, shoddy gyp rock and things like that, right? <laughs> I mean, that's against what... So, so I, I think what the RBA is doing, what I call it, is it's, it's digging a giant hole. Mm. It's digging as big as a hole at, as one can because what mm. it's doing mm. is it's, it's exactly a perfect example of asset price inflation, which then results in people borrowing more, which then results in asset, further asset price inflation, which results in people borrowing more, and then doing what, mm. right? The question is what happened <laughs> to all that funds that you put right, in? Right, right, right. This is also very different from what the Fed in the US has been doing, which is they've been buying bonds of corporations, mm-hmm. right? Basically bring the price for borrowing for industries down. Yeah, yeah. Right? This is very, very different from that. This is basically saying, this is just, this is pure, you know, quantitative easing, mm-hmm. which, you know, uh, and, it's more, and then, to, it's more akin to a tax cut than a genuine change in what people are actually doing, right? It puts more money in the pockets, which goes into prices, rather than, encouraging businesses or banks or financial institutions to actually change what they'd otherwise be doing. No, but it's, it's encouraging people to refinance their loans, it's encouraging yeah. people to, you know, basically take on more debt. Yeah. And and the RBS theory is that that's going to cause, uh, you know, asset, you know, that's going to cause inflation. The yeah. problem is that we're going to buy cheaper and cheaper things from overseas and therefore <laughs> it's not going to cause any inflation. Right. And, and then at some point, uh, the governor is going to, you know, retire, and somebody else is going to be somebody else's problem as these giants of loans are there. Governor Mahati. Right? Well, well, I'll just jack up the rates to like eight percent, and then I'll see what happens. Oh, eight percent, hard man. <laughs> oh, but you know, I mean, that's that's you know. So I, yeah, I just think yeah. that the RBA is down the path that. Yeah. I think it's almost beyond logic what actually mm-hmm. RBA is doing because mm-hmm. it's, you know, you want investment in the economy. It's not that there is lack of opportunity for investment. Yeah. It's not that you can't borrow money. Yeah. It's, it's just the economic setup is not the economic setup is not appropriate for investments. It's set up for you know either because of the franking system for dividends, so corporations are not investing. They're all interested in dividends, mm. and the banking sector is not willing to uh, to lend for uh, for, uh, for entrepreneurship, right? Yeah, what the banking yeah. sector is willing to lend for, you know, let's go and build some more houses or let, let's just keep flipping those houses, right? Yeah, so yeah, exactly. I, I think this is, this is problematic longer term. Uh, short term, I have no view what's going to happen. Uh, probably prices are going to keep going up. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's right, man. Look, you know, you and I, you're, you're a bit more strident than I am, but I think we both agree that I, I don't know what businesses weren't doing or consumers weren't doing at 1% rates that they're doing now at 0.1. You know, the, the last couple of drops, I know it puts more money into the economy, but the RBA is kind of, as that, that's, the, that's why we use this kind of tax cut analogy. They're kind of operating as the de facto government fiscal policy, which is, you know, hey, let's put some more money in people's pockets as opposed to let's genuinely make it better, easier, simpler, more attractive. I mean, yes, of course, any business will pay less interest, in any you know, homeowner will pay less interest if they give them the choice. But 
the reality is if you weren't going to start a business or you weren't going to start an, uh, make an investment in, in plant equipment at 1% or 1.5%, at 0.1%, it, it, you know, it just, just doesn't move the dial enough to actually meaningfully change the activity of the economy. It largely changes, as you say, the pricing, which has, I, I absolutely believe it has some wealth effect. I'm not sure how strong it is, I'm not sure if it's worthwhile. And I absolutely believe that for those of us who aren't going to refinance, a lower rate means more money in our pockets every month, so we go and spend that. So I think those are absolutely stimulatory, but it's kind of like, I feel like, and I, I'm, I'm a little less critical of the RBA only because I feel like they let the government let them to do their own thing. But I almost feel like that's that, that's kind of low saying, well, here's two things that are kind of quasi-fiscal policy almost. They're, they're kind of, you know, um, they're the equivalent of more money in your pay every week rather than generally uh, boosting the, the, the economic activity of the economy in a way that normal cut rate cuts from five to two, for example, would do, which makes it easier or simpler to borrow or allows you to take on some of those riskier projects that a lower hurdle rate could actually make happen. Yeah, I think that's, that's poss- possibly all, all right. I think, again, again, yeah, like, I mean, to me, you know, what I think what we agree is that what was possible at 1%, yeah. uh, you know, if, if it was, if there was no, if the economic activity is only going to come from <laughs> right. buying jeans, yeah, sofas, exactly. Exactly. and new blinds, yeah, it's um, <laughs> but it's not enough. <laughs> well, well, it, it is a type. You see, here's the thing, yeah. right? If you have to look at the flow of those things, right? The yeah. the, the blinds are not made here. They're probably made uh, overseas. Yeah. The the jeans are made overseas. They're yeah. probably, probably produced by overseas companies. So you only have got storefronts that are selling it here. That too are disappearing because you can buy them online. Yeah. So. It is adding economic activity, but to what? Yeah. Right? Yes. So it's, it's helping tax collection, I guess, via mm-hmm. GST. Uh, but that's, that's roughly it. I think it's a, it's a very sad way of trying to create economic activity, you know? And yeah. And I, I, here's the thing, right? It's not even about fiscal. It's about, it's about, it's not even about fiscal policy, I think. Mm-hmm. It's not even a fiscal policy problem. It's just a policy problem as to what. You know, are you creating opportunities for mm. like the rates are low? You know, are we are we actually being very entrepreneurial and and doing those things that we mm. would otherwise mm. not have done? Right. I like it, mate. Good way to finish that segment. Let's move on. Uh, well, I want to talk a bit more about companies, mate, but I want to stay a little bit in the market kind of place because U.S. tech stocks. We're recording this on Thursday morning. I can't say that every week, and I do uh, a because I want to timestamp it because we know what happens when now and then um, between the time this goes to air but also occasionally I listen to say hang on I've listened to this in after the fact and I'm not really sure when it was and what you were talking about so this is Thursday the, the 4th of March um, US tech stocks slumped again overnight on, on the US exchanges I often there's no value in trying to to understand why markets do what they do in the sense that these movements possibly will simply be you know reversed at some future point maybe you know hours or days away maybe weeks maybe months but generally speaking trying to read the tea leaves is not very useful because it doesn't really tell us much about the long-term potential that being said i am a little bit mindful of and i ranted last week mate about the the, the increase in travel company price on the back of the vaccine news that all of a sudden just happened and that that was kind of one of those things one of our colleagues though kevin gandia was talking in the in the team meeting we had yesterday and we'll get to earnings season in a minute but about the fact that some of the companies that he has been keeping an eye on had terrible, you know, six-month periods, last half, um, largely COVID-related, but the shares were actually up <laughs> year on year. And while that's, you know, we're always welcome, we're always happy to see that, there is some sense of, okay, even if the future is still bright, maybe even if that makes some degree of sense, it does, it, it feels a little bit like the market, I mean, the market isn't a single thing, right? But it seems a bit skittish to me. And and I guess, I you know, I, 
I, don't, I think I'm, I'm sure I agree with you. I'm sure I think I know what you're going to say, but I'll, I'll let you say it. But I, I think tech stocks are pretty reasonably priced and I don't honestly see a big reason for the share price falls on, on any sort of relative earnings basis or relative future basis. It strikes me a little bit that maybe investors feel like they want to get out of tech because the shares might fall. So it's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies. Maybe they think that with the economy finally recovering meaningfully here in the US, there might be better gains to be had in the short to medium term with cyclicals or with industrials who are going to come back from you know, the dead and, and start to actually recover. Um, so I just, I just thought I'd, yeah, for those who are, who are, those who are listening, who are, well, we're all impacted to some degree by the economic movements. We try not to be, but we are. And then by the, by the movements of, of stock markets and share prices, I just want to get your reflections made on, on that seemingly, I hate the word rotation because again, it feels like it's an easy one word answer that we don't have to explain, but there is a sense that people are selling tech and getting into stuff that in theory should have a better time than it has in the past because of some sort of COVID recovery. Do you have a, a sense of what, where the market's at, what it's doing, some feeling or, or, or guidance, advice about most recent movements? Okay, cool. So I, I like that. I'm going to preface by saying we're not going to talk about specific companies cool. uh, <laughs> because that would, uh, yeah, uh, while saying that, you know, I am very interested in the tech stocks right now, right. which yep. is aligns with what you are saying without going into specifics <laughs> of companies. Um, so here's what I think is happening. There's, of course, this rotation, so-called rotation that you hit, which is basically going to those companies that were beaten down. Actually, many of them are not beaten down, right? I mean, if you right. think about airline stocks or yeah. think about <laughs> cruise like, lines, travel and cruise lines, they're all actually back to uh, pretty much highs. I um, know, right? That's the weird and, thing. That's the weird thing, right? And uh, and and people think they're going to go higher. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe there's a simple. I I think there might be some simple things at at work here. So we, you know, and I'm just postulating this, but I'm making this on the fly, but I've been thinking about this and I, I think this is largely true without having a proof for it. <laughs> how, how good is that? Um, so, so, That's what I do, mate. That's uh, my so we know that most people and many funds, actually a majority of funds, do not hold positions for the long term. Yeah. Right? You'd be, you know, uh, people hold things for six months, people hold things for like three months, people hold things for a year. Yeah. A lot of people only hold for a year uh, to hump over that, you know, the crossover, that one year point at which you get uh, uh, capital gains tax benefits because capital gains tax benefits of, for holding long term exists in many jurisdictions, right? Now, if you look at the, if you look at the sort of the detail and uh, look at the sort of the, the, the lows for last year, they were around March 10th to 15th. Mm-hmm. So we had just, and then some people might have gotten in a little early, you know, early in the February, when the, you know, so when the market started dropping, people started buying things, right? A lot of people are just basically cashing in on gains is, is one thing. And I suspect that's going to continue for a bit right, right. <laughs> because there's going, to, there's going to be some cashing in of gains because people, again, are not, many people just do not hold for the long term, right? You know, this is, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, the unfoolish way of investing is to invest for the short term, but that's exactly what a lot of people do. So I think part of that is is just that. There's some, now, the the, the rationale for, for tech stocks is, suppose I liked a, a company, Mm. A SaaS company is yes, providing a software to um, to to businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry. 
Uh, um, mobile phone ringing in the background. We're keeping, keeping it real, bud. That's right. Yeah. Is that talking about SaaS companies that are providing software? Yes. Um, so SaaS companies in the in the <laughs> which were providing services. Now a lot of SaaS companies mm-hmm. have had because of digital transformation projects uh, humongous runs, right? And they've had like fantastic. Uh, they've had a speed up. Mm-hmm. I would almost think. Mm. Uh, that um, uh, uh, these companies are going to have actually even better run on an improved economy, right? Because a lot more yeah. people will be, right, right. will be using their services, right? Yep. Uh, which is what the market is not actually thinking mm-hmm. about right now. Yeah, yeah. So, um, again, I'm, I'm not, yeah. So, <laughs> I think some of this is irrational. I, did, I, did, I mean, at the same time, I will, I will say that some tech Stocks companies are priced to the moon. There mm. are there are things that are you know right now priced at you know fifty times mm. sales, mm. Or, you know eighty times sales, hundred times sales, and some of those valuations are hard to justify. Even <laughs> yes, if, yes, even, <laughs> even if even if you know you go out five years mm. and they maintain mm. their growth rates and you know they can you know d- deliver like ninety percent gross margins and fifty percent free cash flow margins, uh, <laughs> like if they're really top of the cream. Yeah. You know, so so there's some rea- I think there's some reality. There's some reality distortion. Uh, there's this. Yeah. So uh, personally, I think you know, um, you know, I like it when people sell, <laughs> and if they sell good companies, uh, it gives me a lot of entertainment. That you know, exactly. hey, you want to sell good companies? Fine, I'll take it from you. Yep. Thank yep. you very much. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, so that's what I am currently. I, I think that there are there are pockets of. Opportunities and there are pockets of overvaluation, mm-hmm. as there always is, uh, and, and there's nothing. Else. But I'll I'll, like I'll finish and I'll give it to you. No, I, I like that. I think I think it's a really good point. I I so I'm going to ask you another question actually. Then I'm going to answer. You mentioned something as you were answering, which I kind of just started to file away or put a little note next to in my head. You talked about companies doing better in a recovering economy, and I guess I'm curious. And I, you don't have individual companies, which is completely cool. But how do you, how do you think about the idea between or differentiating between those businesses that got a got a one-off boost during, or, or, or an unsustainable boost, maybe in a better way, because one-off assumes going to get back to absolute normal, and there's not. There's, so there's there's some businesses that will go back to absolutely normal, right? I, I assume at some point, some future point, um, grocery sales go back to where they were in 2019, because that just makes sense, right? We have not as many groceries we eat. Now, some of us might eat out a little bit less for a few months, but I figure human behavior is going to kind of reset a little bit. There's some that got a massive boost. I'll, I'll include, uh, I don't need you to mention names. I assume you're worried about our trading policy, Doc, to, to give some color to it. Is that the... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just let us know. Yeah, I just don't want to be locked out of, no, of, course, uh, of course. opportunities that might be there. This is why I don't want to talk about <laughs> exactly. specific companies. Um, that's cool. You know, as I, so as I'll, I said, I'll mention names. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you can mention names. And that's, yeah, yeah, that'll yeah. be your problem, not mine. All I'm saying exactly. is when, when, when I see the market pullback getting close to 10%, 10% pullback is quite common. Right, right. right? Yeah, it uh, so. yeah. it happens once, what, every you know 15 months or something like that, or 12 yeah, months, 13 yeah. months. Uh, and that always <laughs> tends to be an opportunity. And, and tech stocks tend to pull back a little bit more than that. So that, uh, I like that. All right. So, uh, so will this go back to normal? Zoom, uh, you know, we probably keep using it, but it's fair to say that, I, you know, usage per person is probably less if and when we go back to the office. Now, maybe more people take it up, but on a on a per user basis, you have to assume that kind of drops off a little bit. And there's businesses that potentially benefited permanently from a change in behaviour. And maybe that is Zoom, right? Or maybe it is, as you say, those SaaS businesses. If I mean, if the monthly fool decides, hey, we're going to work from home, 
you know, either forever or an ongoing basis. We are going to use this new tool. We're going to start using it and we're going to pay per user and we're going to keep using it because we've started. That's a permanent uptick in that business because we're not going to cancel that particular piece of software unless we literally have zero use for it. It becomes part of our way of working. So there's kind of those three broad ideas. Um, how do you think about passing that? Again, not, not mentioning businesses, but how do you kind of in your head think through, hang on, is this one of those back to normal? Is it a back to a slightly higher level, but you know, mostly back to normal, or a hey, this is permanently new and more business? Because that that's going to matter for investors a lot over twenty twenty one, mate. Like if I think about if we, you know, we're talking this time next year, and we're saying, hey, what you know, what what surprised um, up or down, what disappointed, what delighted in the August earnings season? Part of that is going to be cycling. Frankly, I mean, we are now more than a year since the market high of February nineteen. We're now into kind of the beginning of the you know cycling on the start of the lockdowns um the the economic activity that changed through march april may june july that's what we're cycling on over the next few months and when we get to august we'll know whether you know how how we changed or, or continued those new behaviors so how do you think about trying to pass that when you think about how much to pay for some of these businesses yeah so i think you know uh, I, I, i'll speak to the the software part first so there's certain softwares as you said which will become integral parts of the business, right? So uh, let's say to facilitate people working from home, you had to deploy uh, security solutions. Yep. You're not going to disband the security solutions. <laughs> exactly right. Right? Yep. Um, so so that's the first. So, so I mean, that revenue is almost as, as good as sticky unless you want to replace mm-hmm. that with another security solution. The, the, so here's the other side, right? As businesses get back to spending, let's say I'm an airline company that couldn't spend on security yeah. uh, solutions, but I did realize that maybe I should have you know, things sitting in the cloud and I should have a cloud security solution for those things in the cloud. Well, as I get back to business and having my planes on the sky, maybe I'm gonna spend on that. So to me, it looks like the economic growth actually getting to some form of normal or actually getting speed should help businesses that want that might feel that they have been left behind in mm. terms of technology and things like that, right? So a lot of these things I should, should accelerate. It should not decelerate, mm-hmm. in fact, mm. um, right? I, I take a point about you know, if you're video conferencing and things like that, and you decide that you know you some people go back to the office, so they're let, you know, and if there is usage-based pricing, that usage-based pricing goes down, and, and things like that. So I can I can see that side, mm-hmm. uh, but. I think you know if you have a must-have solutions, or if you had like you know enterprise-level software solutions that got you know that got built in that get built into uh, an office and its infrastructure, then uh, I just see no reason to uh, to expect a slowdown for those sort of things, right? And mm. yeah, so I I, th- I think that makes makes mm, sense okay. to me. Yeah. So yeah, I, 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 yeah. I would I would expect enterprise software spending to continue, and mm. I'd expect digital cloud cloud related software uh, spending to continue. Uh, security, for example. Uh, I mean, again, security mm. is like you know, uh, there'll be more hacking. There's going to be more you know right. cyber security attacks, and there's going to be you know cyber theft. So those sort of things are going to be important. Um, and again, I'm not making a case for a specific company, but I think yeah, those yeah, trends yeah. Are, are worthwhile. And of course, you know, there are many companies in each individual area that you can think mm-hmm. of. So, um, of uh, yeah. Nothing, dude. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I've, I've really struggled with this one, you know, and it's, and it's, 
because you've got two layers and I, I, I guess I want to give voice to this as we think about what's going to happen in the next six months because you've got what the businesses are going to do and that's its own question. You've got what share prices are going to do and I think part of that is the tech stuff we just talked about and part of that is is just how do people respond? You know, There will be retailers, Woolworths have effectively said, expect sales decline year on year. And they should, and investors should also expect that. And that should be no surprise for anybody. As you said, mate, we're all, we all cooked at home for three months. We're not going to cook at home as, as much, at home as much, over the, the same three months this year, touch wood, God forbid. And so they're going to sell fewer cans of baked beans and, well, it depends what you cook for dinner, fewer, fewer steaks and fewer you know, things of pasta or whatever. You know, we're just going to, they're going to sell less of that. And investors should expect it. So businesses will, results will reflect that. Investors' expectations, though, and this is what we don't yet know, is what do investors do when Woolies hand that down? Because in some cases, investors will go, oh, yeah, we knew that, and the shares won't move. In other cases, they'll go, my God, what do you mean sales are declining? And you and I will be like, well, yeah, duh. Like, you know, <laughs> the company said as much. We should have expected as much. What were you people thinking? But then again, you've got that, and again, I'll use the example of corporate travel. I own those shares. Um, two weeks ago, that, you know, jumped on the news of the actual vaccine that we should have known about the day before, the Friday before. And yes, there's more certainty. And yes, there's, you can kind of explain it a little bit. But that kind of market response, I think, we'll actually see quite a bit over the next six months. And I guess from from a from a you know um, from a podcast perspective, I just want our listeners to know that you know they should expect it to be potentially very volatile. And by the way, some of those falls will be justified if investors currently aren't expecting that. You know, if if the, if, if woolly shares are priced for another twelve percent growth, you better be careful owning those shares because it's not going to happen. And that fall will be justified. Others will fall and won't be justified. That'll be a buying opportunity, a la the, the 10% dip you talked about in tech right now, Doc. And I think just to bring it back to that, that's that, that's my biggest, you know, watch out for the average investor who just looks at the, looks at the market and says, oh, the, the market's telling me what it knows. Um, we've said many times, we'll keep saying many times, but the market doesn't know <laughs> as much as, you know, you like to think it does or it likes to think it does. But be very prepared, I think, for that volatility over the next six months. Are you kind of in that same headspace of expecting that volatility? Yeah, I almost expect the next month to be in the month of March or this month of March to be pretty volatile. Yeah, yeah. Volatile. I actually do expect volatility to subside um, uh, uh, post, you know, a lot of the rotation is going to happen between now and, in, and maybe next month, mm-hmm. those people who are rotating funds. So that's what I expect. Again, uh, but in my mind, like, I just look at, mm-hmm. well, I look at, uh, the prices and I think what you know where sort of the value is and then I yeah. try to decide. I'm also I I I tend not to you know, and maybe this is the advantage of having like almost a fully formed portfolio when mm. and I don't have a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines that I can deploy. So right, right. I just am patient. I just I wait and uh, I always have like trigger points like okay it's now ten percent and you know <laughs> maybe I'm down twenty percent or twenty five percent from uh, my my highs and therefore that's a good point to you know deploy some uh, some funds and, and that's what I do I almost you know like a, a little bit a little bit mechanical but a little bit also looking mm-hmm. at you know sort of where uh, where I think things have been unfairly sold certainly I'm not <laughs> I'm not going around and buying travel. Uh, mm. You know, so um, uh, it's almost contrarian. So everybody, you know, is, is trying <laughs> trying to go for economy mm. reopening, but mm. I see that all of these things are pretty much priced like, um, you know, everything is behind. It, it is that question of you know what the market is already expecting. I, I would my advice for our listeners would be, you know, the the the. the the concept, the theory is, you know, think about what the market's expecting. But I think that's absolutely an extra degree of abstraction you don't need to go to. You've already mentioned at the beginning of this bit that, you know, you're simply looking, you know, the market doesn't look out far enough. 
And so if you're looking out that far, that far, you can effectively afford to ignore the next six months of whatever ramifications, whatever iterations, whatever volatility we end up with. And more importantly, rather than even worry about what the market's thinking, you just look at a company and say, hang on, or at least this is my view, you may disagree, mate, so let me know. Um, if I look at Woolies, I'm, I'm just saying, okay, well, let's assume, let's assume the next you know couple of months of volatile, next six months of volatile, all I need to do is look out a couple of years and say, am I paying a decent price for what I think the underlying earnings power of Woolworths looks like in a normal in a normal world? Or am I paying too much for it? Or am I being given an opportunity? And to your point, I think that's exactly right, right? The, the bounce back and travel stocks has already effectively been factored in because we know it's coming. Or at least the market assumes it's coming. Maybe I should be a little more, more, uh, absolute, little as absolute. Um, so you know that's already priced in. So you look at you look at the travel stocks. Okay, well, is that price attractive relative to the future underlying earnings power? We given the uncertainty. Maybe yes, maybe no. Similarly for Woolies or any other businesses, the SaaS businesses you mentioned. The only question really we should be asking is when things are normal <laughs> or some version of normal. You know, what is the underlying earnings power of this business? What does the growth look like? And is this a reasonable price? The answer is yes. And as long as you're prepared for the volatility, that's a great time to buy. And by the way, if the answer is no. If, if you look at Woolies shares right now, I'll, I will stick my neck out not too far because it's not a hard call to make. Um, Woolies is priced, I, I own Kogan shares. I'll just preface that quickly. Woolies is priced slightly cheaper than Kogan on a, on a, on a PE basis. And you look at those two businesses and go, hang on. <laughs> Your Woolies is going to be growing, it's going to be declining in the short term and then growing at a moderate rate as per usual for the rest of its life. And it's slightly more, slightly cheaper than Kogan. It's probably going to grow at, I assume, double-digit rates and hopefully meaningful double-digit rates for, a, for, a, for an extended period of time. And you look at those two and you just kind of go, now it doesn't mean Kogan's cheap. It doesn't necessarily mean Woolies is expensive, but putting the two together, there's something wrong with that pricing is my, is my personal view. And I own Kogan, so I'm biased. But there's something wrong with that pricing. And I think that's the bit, if I was an investor looking to buy shares today or I had a portfolio and I was looking to evaluate that portfolio today, that's the sort of question I'd be asking myself because I think that's where the potential risks are over the next six months. Do I, do I do you agree? Do you have a different view? Well, I'm going to agree with almost everything I'm going to accept. I'm going to <laughs> disagree with one part. Go, and please. You, and, and the disagreement is going to be you, I think I'm being just too kind by saying, um, moderate growth. I mean, you know, when you say moderate growth, <laughs> uh, in my mind, I think, well, okay, maybe high single digits, right? Uh, you know, oh, no, I don't say moderate. I mean, like four or six. I, I think it's. I think it's. Uh, okay, you know, so, so so that there we go. That now we are, we are talking. See, so, <laughs> so so yeah, I would you know I would say that you normalized earnings growth for a yeah. mature supermarket is like three to yeah. five percent, four five percent, somewhere yep. four percent yep. maybe, right? So. How much are you paying for that? And yes, there's a lot of stability. <laughs> so maybe you yep. pay a stability premium because you're yeah, going to yeah. almost guaranteed your your uh, frank dividend. But <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> that's that's about it, right? Mm-hmm. So decide how much you want to pay for that. Um, yeah. So maybe sure. not too much of a disagreement. <laughs> exactly. There we go. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, um, let's, let's move on a little bit. Um, we're, we're going to go back to go forward. We've kind of covered this a little bit, so I don't have a, a lot necessarily to ask you or even a lot we need to talk about. But the, the, the earnings season just gone. This is our first chance to chat with all the earnings or most of the earnings in. Um, when I say most of, some companies don't have... So you're obliged to report your earnings to the ASX within two months at the end of your financial period. And most companies run uh, July 1 to June 30, which means they're half years, December 31. There are some that are different. And so not every single company reports in February, but 98% of them, I suppose, do. We've seen the color of their money. We've seen their results. We've seen the earnings. Um, 
we had we had a team meeting yesterday and 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 the guys were talking broadly about um i think andrew leggett might have said the the biggest surprise was there were no really big surprises in earnings um nothing kind of stuck out as being unusual uh which given it was a COVID period is kind of you know bizarre in itself um kevin talked about the as i've already mentioned the fact that some companies are being taken to the woodshed and others are being treated and you mentioned travel stocks he mentioned other companies that i won't mention on, on his behalf um in this context but other companies that are you know had terrible halves but whose share prices are riding pretty high it, i kind of want to talk about earnings without talking about share prices just to, to get a, a kind of pulse check on on the asx but by definition as investors all that matters is then the relativity between that and the share price which gives us a chance to buy or sell so just i wonder if you have any additional thoughts we talked a little bit about this last week but any additional thoughts on the earnings season that was the kind of where corporate australia finds itself where investors on the asx find themselves um, if you have any sense of pockets of opportunity or or, or risk um just just kind of you know march what's well, now much well we march five when we listen to this but you know kind of we only get two shots every year to kind of see the color of their money the the whites of their eyes insert your metaphor here uh in black and white just just general thoughts as you as you think about investing in march after february uh how you're feeling about the market and and investing and, and what's going on yeah, so I, I think, you know, it's a lot of optimism in the results from uh, traditional retailers, for example. They've done really well um, during COVID. Um, mm. Again, a large beneficiary of uh, COVID response, I'd say. Um, we've. I, I think there's been a pocket of weakness sort of in the, in mm. the tech side. Mm. Um, and for a couple of things, I think we mentioned this in the last podcast as well, I think... Um, companies that have overseas earnings have been impacted by the, the strong AUD. Mm. Um, so they've been impacted by that. Uh, the, uh, I guess, my other, uh, the, I would say that, you know, I, I think I agree with Andrew that there were very few surprises as mm. such. Most results, I guess, when you look at them, seems like, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Uh, the, I guess the one, you know, the certain sectors, uh, I've been surprised by the uh, extent of some, uh, you know, uh, sort of, you know, companies like you know Blackmores and A2 Milk. The extent mm. that they have been, say, dependent on on tourism. So these these are interesting companies in the sense that they are not you'd not think of them as tourism related companies, but the mm-hmm. impact of tourism is uh, on these companies is pretty astounding. Yeah. Uh, in in terms of this, and I'm talking about you know the the Daigus here. So that was one interesting thing that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, there's 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 a, yeah. So the only thing I'll say there's a lot of pull forward of demand. There's also a lot of one-time demand that I've seen. Yeah. Uh, I've seen a pullback in 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 some technology companies. Um, that's that's really it. I'm seeing some impact of how the foreign exchange is uh, is impacting mm-hmm. certain companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, like actually, a lot of balance sheets actually look reason, look reasonably healthy now because they've all raised capital and things like that, um, right? And then, I guess my last point is, a majority of companies like to talk. Uh, sure, not a majority. A lot of companies. Let me put, change it that way. A lot of companies yeah. like to talk about operating profits, revenue growth, <laughs> and, and yeah. whatnot, and operating profits yeah. before this and that. Let, let's assume mm-hmm. even before this and that is also okay. What a lot of companies do not talk about is mm-hmm. operating profit growth as a function of the number of shares out there. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. So, so 
if, if there has been dilutive capital raising, then those have an impact. But, you know, almost it seems like that's um, some CFOs don't get that. <laughs> or maybe they get it. They just don't want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> so it's maybe one or a combination of both of those things. So that's that's the other thing I've noticed, that there's a, there's a big, big emphasis on oh operating profits or free cash flow or operating cash flow <laughs> uh, but uh, some of the other stuff actually really matters when you think about the, the valuation so also, so nothing nothing special yeah i um i can't i'm trying to how i can add to what you said mate you, you covered it beautifully i part of me wants to believe the market's learning um and part of me wants to believe that some bounce back in prices is a reminder that COVID has passed, the future will normalise and looking forward is what markets are supposed to do. So on one hand, you know, again, back to Kevin's example of companies that are kind of are back to normal levels. If their businesses are normalising, then that's kind of normal, right? If, they, if profit goes back to 2019 levels and share price goes back to 2019 levels, then that kind of makes sense, right? As long as the future is still as bright as it was and all that kind of stuff. But broadly speaking, the market kind of catching back up to normal makes some sense. What I think it does do, and you've, you've highlighted this, and we've talked about it a little bit before as well, is I, I, I worry about the companies for investors, on investors' perspective, the prices they're paying, uh, that when they go back to normal, profits also go back to normal and, and they're not maybe priced that way. And so that's that's kind of, I think, you know, we need to be a little bit careful about um, and our listeners to be a little bit careful, just making sure that we understand what's likely to happen when it comes to those um, businesses that are going to normalize <laughs> that haven't yet and yet share prices feel like they've normalized to the higher levels of activity so there's that um, again great for the companies fantastic for the companies but just remember that you know this too shall pass and it's been great and we should take the money uh, but when it goes back to normal it goes back to normal I think the other the other thing is probably uh, if you think about the way the economy is likely to, to, to change and roll out I think your point about tech or just just future looking companies in general I, I really do think and we said this many times in different contexts, but COVID will have been, in hindsight, as well as a a, a terrible health circumstance and economic, you know, um, Armageddon that we haven't seen since since the Great Depression. We're we're, we're kind of out of the back end of the the uh, economic circumstance for the most part. Health hopefully isn't far behind either, and it'll change a whole lot of things. And, and we will do things a whole lot differently in the future than the past. And I think, assuming that you can look backwards and as much as I said, you know, if if profits and and revenue go back to twenty nineteen levels, that seems reasonable, and share prices do the same, then that should be that should be okay, and it, and it kind of should, as long as those businesses do have the same outlook for growth that they had in twenty nineteen, and that's the thing I think people need to be a little bit careful of that may well have changed as well as changing behaviours, um, online retail particularly, but then the, the the other thing, offline retail. How many of us are going to go back to the shops? Is it 95 percent of us? And don't forget, if only ninety five percent of us go back, that's five percent reduction for many retailers. That's that's effectively break even falls in sales, right? As much as it sounds silly, if a retailer loses five percent of sales, that's most of their profit gone for most retailers. Um, so just be just be really careful with the assumptions you make about well, it'll be almost normal. Almost normal for some retailers, uh, some companies is fine. Almost normal for other retailers uh, in particular can be can be disastrous. So I guess that's probably the last um, last point I'd make. Um, Doc, speaking of which, you did mention before we we chatted, uh, before we started recording the. The COVID response, and we, I mentioned at the top that we talk a little bit about that, and you kind of mentioned the the massive uptake and, and the remarkable rollout of vaccinations. And I guess I won't even ask you a specific question or, or try and lead you in a different direction. That was kind of the, the observation you made, and you kind of talked about a, a date and then what might happen next. So I guess I'll just open the floor and say, you know, how are you feeling about the social health and then economic and investing outcomes 
likely as a result of the vaccinations and kind of, you know, just, just how you're reflecting on that in your own investing life? Yeah, so uh, the, the, the thing I was referring to was uh, the U.S. President Biden's announcement that they should be able to pretty much vaccinate all of the U.S. by May, uh, which is a full two and a half months ahead of what their anticipated schedule is. Which um, is just quietly astonishing. 300 million people, no, won't, won't do kids, so maybe it's what, 200 million probably people to get vaccinated in yeah. six months from, from in, kind of late November to May. That, that's remarkable. Remarkable. Also, a majority of these people are likely to be being vaccinated using new technology, you know, Pfizer and Moderna mm, mm. Uh, vaccines, right? So, uh, I mean, that, that's a remarkable uptick in sort of production, logistics, yeah, and yeah. things like that. So that's pretty phenomenal. Uh, and uh, so, what I think is interesting, though, is I just have been thinking in my mind is <laughs> once once the U.S. has vaccinated, I'm just guessing. Mm. There will be no reason for them to have any sort of border controls. Of like, they don't have border controls, but I mean, there'll be no vaccine-oriented, you know, border controls. Is is right. my guess, right? Right. Now, I, I think that, that I think that means that now, if you if there are other countries which have, uh, and again, this is my guess that there wouldn't be, but there maybe is some vaccine-oriented border, uh, you know, vaccine passports mm -hmm. and things mm -hmm. like that. People are talking about, yeah, yeah. but if if the whole purpose of vaccination is to uh, basically uh, help people fend off a disease and assuming that there are no uh, significant mut mutation spreads and things mm. like that, mm. that makes it interesting because let's say, you know, Singapore, it's using as a random example, is uh, Singaporeans are traveling to the US, mm. Mm. <laughs> right? It actually, you know, all this talk of, uh, uh, these uh, travel bubbles that we've been hearing here, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it, it, it very quickly falls apart, right? I mean, you can have, okay, U.S. is vaccinated, you want to have a travel mm -hmm. bubble that you pay by U.S., but if U.S.'s border is completely open, effectively, few countries have their borders right. completely open. The, 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 uh, the idea of travel bubbles basically fall apart very quickly yeah. uh, because effectively... It has to be exclusive are, in both directions, right? To make it has to be exclusive in more directions. And I just think that it's going to be very quickly, almost impossible to have, uh, you know, because Israel yeah, is going to be point. very quickly 100% vaccinated. Uh, the United Arab Emirates is very quickly going to be 100% um, uh, <laughs> vaccinated. And, and effectively, as this happens, you, you either decide that you want to be a closed border um, or you be an open border, but there's no halfway between. So all these airline <laughs> uh, CEOs jumping around, oh, we're going to have vaccine passports and things like that. This is, you know, I, I almost feel like this is just another investment in the wrong direction for the airlines. It's not worthwhile because I think it's very quickly, <laughs> right. going, it's going to very quickly come crumbling. Um, when no one bothers, no one else bothers, right? Yeah. Well, effectively, you just need two or three big countries to basically say, well, our borders are now fully open and, uh, you know, we're just going to uh, just, uh, you know, be um, back to uh, uh, to full operation and back to, you know, essentially thinking of life as normal. So I think that's the interesting. I think the, the other thing related to this is that U.S. being the largest economy of the world, it the, the, it, the pace... There's, a, there's definitely a question of, you know, the rate, I guess, of inflation and whether inflation is going to see an uptick because, um, you know, people were expecting sort of, you know, September fall, so the, the northern hemisphere fall. And if it happens in summer, 
summer is a high activity time for exactly those type of activities that have been closed for a long time. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, uh, you know, people going on summer holidays and people going on vacations and, you know, so the, you know restaurants, you know, uh, parks and, uh, and hotels and, you know, airlines and things like that. So I think there's this chance that you know inflation might actually start showing up which which then has impacts on on rates so, so some some interesting things happening which again it's very hard to say exactly which direction things are going to move but i think it's worth keeping an eye on i like that mate i um I, it's not something i've <sighs> I just I thought about actually the, the open borders and kind of the I think that the unknown so far for me I haven't been following vaccination specifics closely enough there was a sense from many people and possibly from a morality ethics kind of human um, you know worth basis rather than economics but there was a sense that you know vaccines needed to be provided to the world including the developing world because unless they were they were kind of vaccinated then the whole world wasn't vaccinated in the sense that they added risk and until they were done we kind of couldn't assume everything everything was okay but to your point it may well be that even if they're not vaccinated we can let them in and even let them in with covid because the populations in those countries that are vaccinated don't don't aren't aren't at risk in any significant way uh from from uh, catching it or if they do you know it'd be a low level dose of how the vaccines work or a low level case i should say is that is that kind of your 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 take on it that eventually they say well you know okay you're coming from a low vaccination country we don't really we're america we really don't care because we're vaccinated so we're effectively gonna let you in anyway not worry about it um we probably won't catch it from you and even if we do we can deal with it is that kind of the the, the vibe you're getting or, or is it um well i guess uh, that's how it works well, uh, I am just without, saying... Without, before, the, uh, without well, the passport kind of idea. Well, I mean. so here's the thing, right? Isn't that exactly how it works? I mean, right now, oh, totally. how, yeah. how many times uh, the Australian Border Control actually checks whether <laughs> somebody coming from <laughs> India has tuberculosis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Red, red totally. of tuberculosis is quite prevalent in India, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just using India as an example because I can mm. without you yeah. know, offending people. Yeah. Uh, but... That's the case, right? And tuberculosis yeah, yeah. is a pretty deadly disease. So I yep. think partly mm, mm. It, partly how people feel about these things and talk about these things is a mm. function of, I think, what has happened, how it has been dealt with, what has yeah. been done, and what people think about it without really thinking about these. Well, it's there are layered issues here, right? So... Right. Um, as I said, I think you can have closed or open anything in the middle actually does not work. Uh, uh, you can try to come up with, you know, and closed is a possibility. You can stay closed forever if you want to. That's, that's definitely a choice uh, that is there. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not commenting on it being correct or incorrect. I'm just saying that's a yeah, possibility, sure. but there's, there's no in between. Um, yeah, so I think the other thing that needs to be, you know, so take, take the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is going to be used mm-hmm. uh, in Australia for the bulk of the population, right? Mm. That's the vaccine that's going to be also be available to the bulk of the population of the world, right? So the Serum Institute in yeah, India yeah. is producing that for like $2 uh, mm-hmm. a piece. So as more and more people get vaccinated, one would think that supply that has currently been constrained because... Um, because vaccines have been hoarded, right? So, okay. uh, so if you think about if you think about production, there is no vaccine production that is leaving the United States. Oh, interesting. Okay. Right. So, the vaccine production is happening in the United States. So, the Pfizer vaccines, for example, are coming here um, from Europe, <laughs> and oh, even okay. in the, and they're coming from a Belgian plant, and 
and uh, even even those, you know, there are there are strict controls, and you know how many are, are going to be uh, left out, right? But yeah. as I think, so you, you think about it this way: as the United States uh, vaccine production ramps up to meet its demand, well, mm. then the production is ramped up. Most of the cost has been absorbed. The prices should come down, and maybe you know they're going to sell some of that to other places. So the vaccination speed overall should increase uh, as well. So I mean, there's you know, so if you if you combine uh, if you combine those capacities, so the big vaccine productions happen, you know, in the U.S., in parts of Europe, and then in India, uh, Italy is a big uh, big producer as well. So so I mean, if mm. you if you add all of that production together, it it should supply vaccine, at least the AstraZeneca vaccine, and, and should be available to large parts of the world uh, that tend to get vaccinated, right? There are going to be parts of the world that don't get vaccinated, but that hasn't changed, right? That is exactly what the current state of the world is, right? You, you know, uh, large parts of the world do not have access to vaccination. That's a different problem, right? That's a different yeah, yeah, problem of yeah. access. That's a, that's a problem of, um, you, you know, how IP works and how, um, yeah, right. uh, you know, how production works and how whether or not licensing agreements are there and things like that. Uh, and just, uh, just a function of wealth, right? So there are countries which can't afford to pay for these things. Um, so, but that's that's the reality. I mean, that, that, but but I th- I would say that you know by the end of the year I would think that a large portion of the world that tends to get vaccinated or has access to vaccinations should have access to those vaccinations. That's a good point, mate. Um, I'm going to change tack a little bit, although not all that much, because it kind of does come to the question of how important non-financial considerations are this time for the stock market. We talked about it a little while ago, I think, when uh, Rio Tinto lost a couple of executives on the back of the. Uh, mess they made when they basically um, destroyed some Aboriginal sacred sites in the Jukin Gorge, Jukin, I think that's how it's pronounced, in WA. Um, it seems like the bloodletting hasn't quite finished because the current chair, Simon Thompson, has said he is going to renominate for one more 12-month term but use that 12 months to find a new chairman. And it seems to be um, that the it's related directly or indirectly to that outcome that, that you know there's there's I think, I think they lost the ceo of the business the ceo maybe of the of the iron ore division i think from memory and now the chair and it just reminds me again of how much i think investing or business has changed i you know we saw only i don't know how many years ago was it when there was the um the dam collapse in south america i can't remember the country it was now which is um which is disappointing uh and there kind of was some financial impact i think the companies were probably fine the shares probably fell a little bit but you know on the back of that there's been of course lots of concerns about pollution and um, poor uh, outcomes for populations and communities in asia as well in different mining operations it was kind of one of those things that bubbled along in the background people complained about it but no one i won't say no one cared but you know didn't impact the miners or the, the share price or the profits or the people it's any one of those you know almost almost a cost of doing business in a really uh, mercenary kind of way um but i, I don't know maybe maybe rio is the exception that proves the rule or maybe rio is the new rule um just reminds me of the impact again as investors even if you're not someone who cares about esg environmental social and governance issues in your investing it still can impact the companies you're investing in because others do and i just i don't know if you have any thoughts on that but it just struck me how seriously this is being taken by the investment community who frankly forced these people out the company who was prepared not to try and write it out but to simply say yep guys you got to go um it does seem like we've turned some sort of corner 
Yeah, I think it's more more focus on uh, these sort of you know social, environmental, and other issues that have become sort of you know. So these these are the the non financial qualitative factors that have started to matter a lot more. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, you know, there's a lot more of that. It, it is. I mean, we've talked previously in this podcast, right, about large fund managers saying that they're not going to buy certain kinds of companies in their portfolios. Mm. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And and you can just add this, you know, corporate management, right. uh, you know, how the board views its its role um, mm. in, in a company and sort of a company's role in society, right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the interesting changes. They are. I um, yeah. I, I really haven't kind of processed it entirely. I have to say, I I am not someone who who invests with a specifically ethical filter for reasons I've discussed in the past. I'm not going to go through again because I'm sure this is a bore of them. But effectively, I don't think it makes a difference whether or not I buy the shares or you buy the shares or someone else buys the shares. So um, now I don't own a lot of businesses that are arguably significantly unethical. You could probably argue about supply chains or other things in some businesses I own. I guess if you depending how far down the rabbit hole you wanted to go. Um, I just I just thought it was interesting, mate. It's something I've I've not formed a view on it's just something i'm aware of and kind of keeping an eye on um because at some point even if i don't care if enough other people do <laughs> that's how shares are priced right and that's how that's how business operations are done um it, it, you know it wouldn't be the first time that you know you shake your fist at the at the ocean and you know i don't think that share should be worth less than that just because of this and the rest of the market disagrees with you you don't really have a choice um either eventually they come back because they do or they never do um but knowing that having a sense of that i think is is increasingly important it's kind of worth worth thinking about Mate, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna quickly uh, answer a couple of ask a couple of quick mailbag questions if you've got the time. We're almost done, but we're not quite out of time just yet. Um, here's one. It's a big topic, actually, mate. It's one from Jane, who's a regular correspondent. Thank you, Jane. Um, and this, I don't know if you have a have a view on this or an answer on this one, but I thought I'd ask it. Hi, Scott. Thanks as always for a great show. I know you're not a big advocate for buying Bitcoin, but I wondered if you guys could provide a 101 guide to the safest, most economical way of buying Bitcoin. Many thanks, Jane. Uh, now, Doc, I don't have an answer to this one, but I thought I'd ask just in case you do. I famously have, of course, bought $100 worth of Bitcoin. For those who've been listening for uh, since the podcast started, I bought $100 worth of Bitcoin using Coinbase, the app, about I suppose four or five years ago now. I can't remember how long ago. Um, and then, of course, I haven't been able to sell it because Coinbase doesn't let you sell uh, in Australia. So I'm not going to give Jane any specific advice other than, um, as, as my advice would be generally with brokers and other things, go with a trusted name, uh, understand what you're getting into, use others' reviews and insights to, to give, minimize your chance of getting taken for a ride. But it's a bit of a wild west, and I, I would urge Jane and others to be super careful before plunking down large amounts of cash and hoping your broker or your exchange, uh, your wallet, is as secure as you might like it to be. Do you have any thoughts or advice for Jane, Doc? No, no. Unfortunately for Jane, I mean, while I have warmed up to the idea of Bitcoin, I fortunately have no investments in Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> and I I actually have not investigated how to invest in Bitcoin um, and, and things like that. Well, you know, here's what I think about Bitcoin, right? I mean, if Bitcoin is going to become anything serious, like, you know, store of value that people think, uh, yeah. then I think that corporations are going to deploy some of their funds in Bitcoin yeah. and by holding uh, shares in these corporations uh, you know over time I'll just get the exposure to Bitcoin huh, that I, I think. Like that, so, yeah. so, I, so I have a passive way of thinking about mm, this mm, mm. Um, right it's it's too volatile for me to you know to make sense for me to invest at least that's my mm, my mm. thinking and it's too complicated because you know like I can buy I can't sell if I forget the key like this, this person in the exactly. United Kingdom who lost a hard drive, 
is then I trying know. to excavate the hard drive so that they can get the 250 million pounds. He wants to pay the council a couple of million dollars to let him let him dig up the tip. That's amazing. No, he offered to give the council half if he oh, found really? it. Yeah, okay. but the council still said no because what if they don't find the drive and it doesn't work, <laughs> uh, right? So, yeah, look, uh, uh, yeah. So I don't have uh, any advice for Jane as such. I'm sorry, Jane. There you go. Sorry, Jane. We can't. We can't help you much more. Doc, one more really quick one uh, from Jesse, who is also a regular correspondent, and a couple of female correspondents, which is awesome because we are coming up to International Women's Day. Um, Jesse says, "Hi, Scott and Doc. I'm so thankful for your podcast. I learn something each time I listen." Oh, thanks, Jesse. Now, this is one you've been talking about a lot, Doc. So I wanted to ask this one specifically. I have a question about free cash flow. She says, "I'm now understanding that cash is king." And I'd like to be investing in companies that have a record of generating free cash flows. No accounting trickery, she says with an exclamation mark. I mean, looking at Reuters.com for company financials, is net income the same thing as free cash flow? And how do I find a historical free cash flows for a company? Are there any free online sources that can give me this kind of information? Thank you, guys. Jesse. Doc, you're a big fan of uh, free cash flow. I'm sure you'll join me in telling Jesse no. Net income is not the same as free cash flow. <laughs> no. Net, net, income, um... <laughs> net income is definitely <laughs> not where you look for it. <laughs> now, it's, it's, a, it's a good question, though, because she's using a US source, mate. And net income is not a phrase that Australians tend to use. We talk about net profit after tax. The Yanks call it net income. And I understand that could be confusing for some listeners who, who are using different sources and finding different types of information. So first things first, net income is net profit after tax or close enough to it. Other than that, mate, so I assume that's not free cash flow. How does Jesse find it for free if you know? And certainly how yeah. does she calculate it otherwise? Yeah, so so you have an income statement, you have a balance sheet, and you have a cash flow statement, right? So you want to find the cash flow statement equivalent. Um, you know, whatever it is, you know, different different places will call it different things, but it's basically where you get the cash flow. Uh, yep. And what you want to look at is how much cash is generated from operations. So that's basically called short formed as CFO or cash from mm-hmm. operations. And a shorthand, now you can do a lot of other things, but the shorthand is to look at cash flow operations minus out capital expenditures. And I guess if there are regular acquisitions, then you can minus that out too, <laughs> because they're regular acquisitions, right? If it's not regular, then, then you can forget about it as like a one-timer. If a company makes regular acquisitions, I'll remove that. Uh, and then you basically, that tells you how much cash the business is generating um, after making sort of those investments that it needs to make for plants, uh, plants mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, and that gives you sort of an indicator of free cash flow and pretty reliable indicator of free cash flow. At least that's what I do. I keep it simple, sort of trying to make it too difficult, too complicated. Um, and and like then I'm often surprised that there are companies whose earnings keep growing, but their, you know, their net income, <laughs> as, he, as he said, or net profit after tax keeps growing dramatically every year. But yep. the free cash flow just does not grow. <laughs> I like it. Um, Doc, historical data access. Do you, uh, you probably use Capital IQ, which is our kind of internal system that we use. Is there anything you know externally that's easy to grab that kind of data from? Well, when she's looking at Thomson's Reuters data, I think you can get that from yeah, there. Great. And I don't know whether you can get three years or five years, but I think you can get mm-hmm. that. Uh, most brokerages have access to some form of data source, which is decently reliable in most cases. Um, nice. I, th- I think Comsec gives you financials via Morningstar. Um, yes, so, so that's uh, so that that works. Uh, yeah, and and those those sort of um, good advice. Yeah, I like that. I think it makes it look. I think the other thing I'd say, add to Doc's thoughts just very, very briefly, 
Um, if you think about the way we talk about um, cash flow, I'll only say that relatively, it was worth doing both. So here's here's why, right? The accountant, the, the accounting profits can be absolutely gamed and screwed with and messed around with for profit <laughs> for those companies who want to try and make things look different. And cash is absolutely real. So you won't hear me saying ignore cash at all, uh, but you also won't hear me saying ignore profit. And here's why. It's possible when you do run a profit and loss statement and a cash flow side by side, you're seeing the way the accounting is used. One useful example, for example, is let's say you're a company that has to, and I'm, I'm going to make it up, right? You, you've got you to buy a new machine every five years. On the cash flow statement, the cost of that machine shows up in year one and then disappears for years two, three, four, and five. And so in year one, the cash flow looks terrible. In years two, three, four, and five, it looks great. Year six, guess what? It's going to look terrible again because I've got to go and buy and replace that machine. And again, you know, super, super simple example, simplistic example. But you get a much lumpier cash flow. What the accounting should do is actually show you one fifth of that cost in every one of those years. So in year one, profits higher than cash flow. Uh, in years two, three, four, and five, it's actually lower than cash flow because you're you've got an expense, a, a, a depreciation for those who like their accounting for that machine. And so all I would say is, yes, free cash flow is the best metric. Cash is king, but also just just look at the PNL as well and just try and eyeball it and see if you can see where they're making some changes, just to give you a sense of how reliable that cash flow estimate is or the cash flow actuals are sorry i should say in terms of estimating future needs for cash flows docs mentioned acquisitions for example and backing those out so just just you know absolutely use cash flow i think it is the better of the of the two statements but i always use both just to try and understand how representative cash flow is of ongoing costs and ongoing cash flows because if it's lumpy sometimes the pl actually gives you a smoother view and assuming they're not screwing with it which is they possibly are uh, it actually might even give you a more reasonable average over a long period of time because of the accrual nature of accounting. And again, I'm not going to go into that in a podcast, but trust me on that one. So yeah, I would say absolutely use free cash flow, but also just be mindful of where it can be lumpy. And I thought, Jesse, I love your idea of going back over time and looking at multiple years worth to get a sense of how it fluctuates. If it does, the PL actually might be your friend in trying to put that cash flow into context. Any more on that, Doc? No, I think I agree with everything that you said. It all makes sense. <laughs> That's unusual, but I'll, I'll take it um, for me to make sense. Um, <laughs> that does wrap us up, Doc. Before we go, we would like our listeners to subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app, or the brand new Listener app that we talked about last week, L-I-S-T-N-R. Um, has a whole lot of cool stuff from Southern Cross Stereo, including our podcast and plenty of others as well. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a rating. A review would be lovely. Five stars is best until Doc gets Tim to put a six star on the iTunes uh, uh, podcast app. We'll have to go with five. Uh, please do tell your friends. If you think you have a friend or a family member who can do with some useful, hopefully fun, hopefully uh, pretty straight talking, finance advice we'd love them to join you as a podcast listener as well and you can get a dose of foolishness and a little bit of marketing from us straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple m triple m that's it for this week's motley full money but surprise surprise we'll be back sunday with a special special mailbag edition until then fool on fool on The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.